Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. Today's talk is presented by Associate Professor Kristen Harmon, a lecturer in Aboriginal Studies at the University of Tasmania and author of Cleansing the Colony, Transporting Convicts from New Zealand to Van Diemen's Land. During the mid-19th century, at least 110 people, including six Māori, were transported as criminals from New Zealand to serve time in the penal colony of Van Diemen's Land. Detailed records of their interrogations have survived, along with in-depth accounts of their physical features and other personal attributes. Tasmania's convict records can tell us much about the origins, characteristics and skill sets of the working classes who populated New Zealand's early towns and cities. So what I want to do in today's presentation is to first of all look at some relevant background context related to convicts being transported to Australia, to the Australian penal colonies and then have a look at three individual lives, and then at what all the lives of convicts transported from New Zealand taken together can tell us about the fabric of society at the time. And we're looking here at the decade from 1843 through until 1853. So fundamentally, a few years ago, I was at Archives New Zealand in Wellington, and I was there to look at information about the Featherstone prisoner of war camp in my home valley in Wairarapa. And while I was waiting for more records to be brought up for me to access, I thought, oh, look, while I'm sitting here, I'll just have a look in the online catalogue and see, you know, uh, is there anything in the holdings relating to Tasmania or Van Diemen's land? And so I scrolled through the screens to look at available material. And then I found an indent listed. And I thought, oh, you know, this seems a little bit odd. So at that point, I ordered up this document. And I was incredibly excited to find that this was, in fact, a book. And it listed the names and details of convicts transported from New Zealand to Van Diemen's Land from November 1847 through until February 1853. I knew a few people had been sent. I knew in particular about Māori convicts who had been sent from New Zealand to Van Diemen's land, but this opened up a whole new chapter for me of this, um, for me, very interesting history. Now, this history of convict transportation extends right across the globe. So, it wasn't just a practice of the British Empire, but it was actually a practice of the French, the Portuguese and the Spanish empires. And this practice of transporting people who had been criminalised stretches over about 500 years and involved, in fact, hundreds of thousands of people. So in relation to the British Empire, it's probably more of a, a nuanced practice than the ideas at least I grew up with um, when we learnt about, you know, perhaps people being starving in the East End of London and stealing a loaf of bread and then being sent to Australia. In fact, within the British Empire itself, there was a whole range of people 
who were transported to a range of places, including, but not exclusively, the British penal colonies, uh, uh, sorry, the Australian penal colonies, which were in fact New South Wales, Van Diemen's Land and Western Australia. And Norfolk Island, of course, was also utilised. But these people could be former slaves. Some of them were, in fact, former slaves. So people who had been enslaved but then ended up being arrested on some grounds and then transported as convicts. Many of them were soldiers. Some of them were, in fact, hungry children. Others were what we might call political resistors. So during the industrialisation of England, for example, people that were frame breakers, uh, some of them were arrested and transported. Importantly, I think, too, a number of the people were, in fact, Indigenous peoples. So people weren't transported solely from England or Ireland. Many people were transported from other British colonies to or even within the Australian colonies. And previously, I wrote a book looking at these people. So there were quite a few Australian Aboriginal men, around 90 or so that we know of, who had been arrested and then transported. There were also a few Māori from Aotearoa, New Zealand. There were some Indigenous peoples, some Khoi and San from the Cape Colony. That's now part of South Africa. Fundamentally, for Indigenous people who were transported, they had been caught up in episodes of frontier warfare and frontier violence. And rather than being treated as prisoners of war, their acts of resistance against the British were criminalised and they ended up being transported uh, mostly to Sydney and to Hobart here in Tasmania. Now, in New Zealand, the first person sentenced to transportation was a young man called William Phelps Pickering. He's a little bit unusual because unlike most of the others transported from New Zealand, he was what we might think of as a white collar criminal, both in terms of his background and the crime he committed, which related to a fraud. And he had come out as a young man, in fact, from England, trying his luck in Tasmania and in what became Victoria, but was in fact the Port Phillip district at the time, before moving to Auckland. And it was there that he fell foul of the law and ended up being sentenced to transportation. Now, when Pickering was sentenced, that was all very well. And at the time, people could be transported to sites that had been gazetted as sites that could receive transported prisoners. So Van Diemen's Land was a place that legally he could be sent to, but then an instrument was required to enable what was then the pretty new British colony of New Zealand to be able to send convicts to anywhere. So essentially, this instrument was a proclamation that um, William Hobson put together. Uh, he's citing an order in council and act of parliament, respectively, and you know they, that bestowed upon him as governor that he could appoint that any offender convicted in the colony could be transported by the first convenient opportunity to Van Diemen's Land. When convicts arrived in Hobart, if they were coming from 
Ireland or England or from the Cape Colony, uh, where vessels would call in to collect them, they would come on usually on large convict ships known as transports. When they came across the Tasman, though, from New Zealand, they often, if they weren't convicted in Auckland, they would often be shipped to Auckland, or some actually would come direct from Wellington, but they would actually come on the smaller intercolonial trading vessels. So the government would do a deal with a small ship owner who might have been bringing a particular cargo over, and he would they would, the government would pay for several convicts to come. Often there might only be one or two or perhaps half a dozen at a time. And the government would also pay for a police guard to accompany those convicts on that small intercolonial trading vessel. So the convict system, I mean, it's kind of funny that we call it a system because I suppose to start with, there was really a set of informal practices around how people who were convicts should be treated. And over time, that evolved into set rules and regulations. But those rules and regulations also changed over time. And there's actually volumes of correspondence. Like here in Hobart, for example, there's colonial secretary's office correspondence, governor's office, convict department, volumes and volumes of it. And to date, nobody's actually gone through really methodically to come up with a book that's really definitively sets out exactly what the system was supposed to look like at any given time. And as we all know anyway, rules are one thing, but the way they were enacted is quite another. So even though there were set regulations and rules, they might not always be complied with anyway. And, um, you know, justice was served in different ways. But to, to take a sort of broad brushstroke look at things, when convicts were first being sent to Sydney and then a little later to Hobart, there was a system that's referred to as assignment. And that meant that people who arrived on those convict transports would be assigned into service. So they could be assigned to a master or mistress. They might be doing domestic service. They could be labouring on a farm. They could also be assigned to the government to do works. So they might be building roads, bridges. They could be building government buildings. So fundamentally, they provided a system of labour. The convict system was about punishment. It was also about reformation. So the convicts were expected to labour hard. They were also to be reformed, largely through religious instruction. They also had, at times, rudimentary education, you know, reading and writing and, and such like. But while there was the idea of reformation, there was also an attitude in society somehow that convicts were tainted for life. So I don't think anyone was ever truly believed to be wholly reformed. It's quite an interesting kind of conundrum there when you look back at, at the attitudes of the time. Now, by the time convicts started to be sent from New Zealand to Van Diemen's land, convict transportation to Sydney had ended, which is why Hobart would have been the preferred port to send people to. It was the next closest place to ship them that was able to take them. 
And at the same time, there was quite a dramatic shift in the system. So instead of being assigned immediately on arrival, uh, the system had changed because that old assignment system was thought to be somewhat corrupt. And, you know, the kind of better off people in society got the best servants or, uh, you know, husbands were assigned to wives or, or vice versa and so on. And the system was just thought to be open to all sorts of abuses. So when the New Zealand convicts came to Van Diemen's Land, this probation system had been put in place. And what happened under that is when the people first arrived, they would be sent for a period of time to what was called a probation station. And the map I've put up for you there shows the places around uh, Tasmania or Van Diemen's Land as it was then, the stations to which people from New Zealand were sent. There were other stations as well, but you can see on the map there, the stations follow the main sort of farming areas up the centre and around the east coast of Van Diemen's land at the time. So the, the probation period varied, though the convict when they arrived would be told how many months they had to serve and where they had to go, and provided all went fairly smoothly while they laboured at the probation station, the person could then progress on to become a probation pass holder. Once you were a probation pass holder, you could then be hired from the hiring depot and then you could earn money as an assigned servant while you saw out the rest of your sentence. So there was quite an incentive there to behave in the ways that were expected so that you could you know, get out into society and, and start to make good for yourself. This then, I guess, um, takes us back to this initial excitement of finding this indent in Archives New Zealand and Wellington, but then that indent posing the issue of me needing to find out, well, are these the only people sent to Hobart? Were there others? You know, for how long did this practice extend? And I found it really useful to look at some earlier work by Robert Burnett, who had been at Victoria University of Wellington, a criminologist who did a report on some of the trials involved. Werner Mossong gave a paper on this topic quite some years ago. And Heidi Kuglin had also written a little on this work and had in fact visited Hobart. So that was really useful background for me. But in answering the question as to how many people I could find who were sent here, uh, I went to one of my favourite record sets in the archives here in Hobart. So fundamentally, we're quite lucky, well, very lucky really in Hobart to have quite extant convict records. There are a number of different sets of records held here and they're so significant that they've been inscribed in the UNESCO Heritage um, Register, Memory of the World. So in Sydney, for example, there are certainly surviving records, but quite a few were deliberately destroyed. Even here in Hobart or in wider Tasmania, some records were destroyed. There's uh, tales of people going into the archives uh, earlier in the 20th century, you know, ripping out a page that belonged to their ancestor so that nobody could later find that their ancestor had indeed been a convict. Uh, this was well before the time when it became 
became a matter of pride for Australians to have a convict in the family tree. It was a matter of absolute shame and horror and people didn't want to be found out. So the key record that excites me in Tasmania happens to be called CON16. It's an indent, um, indent from the convict department or a series of indents. So that's where I turned, but I want to pause briefly to mention that the range of materials that I looked at in relation to this project led to my publishing a book called Cleansing the Colony with Otago University Press, who were just fabulous to work with. So after finding the convict indents at Archives New Zealand, I worked with the convict indents here in Tasmania. And I should mention the purpose of the indent really, it's a legal instrument that was passing the right to put the person to labour from one colony to the other. It also does other interesting things for us today, but at, at the time that the convict indents were created, it was really, that was their key purpose. So I'll move on to talk a little bit more about indents shortly in relation to some individuals. But after getting together a list, and I, I managed to identify 110 people who had been transported, 109 men and one woman. And one of those people I found wasn't listed on the indents, but I found a conduct record for, which is another type of record we'll look at shortly as well. So essentially, I then found that there was, of course, other relevant and interesting material uh, at Victoria University of Wellington, for example, you've got the New Zealand Lost Cases database that held information about some of the people, the wonderful repositories in New Zealand and here in Australia, the Trove newspapers and New Zealand papers passed, which many of you will be familiar with, that contained reports of crimes and the trials of many of these people, but not all. There were petitions, letters, you know, the usual sorts of materials one might expect. Let's turn now to look at CON16, which, um, as I mentioned, is one of my favourite uh, record sets here. And really, I suppose one of the key messages of this talk today I wanted to convey was the really rich insights, I think, that these records held here in Hobart can give us into individuals who were living in New Zealand in the 1840s and early 1850s. So often these indents and other convict records we'll touch on briefly tell us more about the individual than is revealed, say, in the trial records in New Zealand or other records I've been able to find. So at this time, we had, of course, the blue books, which tell us quite a lot about the colony and particularly, you know, lots of numbers and figures and so forth. But we didn't have the census yet. So as an opportunity to explore individual lives, I think this record set has a lot to offer. And I hope you might agree with me when we look at a few of the, the people. So I want to share with you three people. So when I started to look through this record set and I looked through all of the volumes, there's five or six, uh, the sixth one has little in it. At the top of the screen now, Having said I'll share these with you, I'm sharing them so that you can see the form of the documents. I think they will prove to be quite hard to read on the screen. I don't expect you to be able to read them all. Nevertheless, if you think of the convict indent register I showed you the cover of, when you open the book, which in 
Hobart, we can't. These have been digitised for us and they're also on film. In New Zealand, I had the absolute pleasure and thrill of holding the book. I, you know, I hope you might relate to that. Uh, it was just fantastic. One of those real high points of a historian's life, I think. But nevertheless, let's pretend we've opened this register, although we're doing so digitally. And at the very top of the page on the double spread, it tells the vessel that somebody has come on. And this is always a small vessel because it may have been people being shipped from Melbourne or Adelaide or uh, what became Brisbane or Sydney or somewhere from within Australia, but some of them were from New Zealand and they're the ones I was looking for. At the top of this particular page, we see Per John Prairie. So that was the vessel the people came from. We'll turn to the facing page shortly and we'll see that that vessel came from New Zealand. But first of all, I wanted to introduce you to one of the men on this page because his story is one of many. In fact, I think they all fascinate me, but I had to choose. So I've chosen Emmanuel Lewis and he is here. He's the second uh, name listed on this particular indent. So we can already start to see from this first page that, you know, it tells us some information that we wouldn't otherwise have about this young man. We can see that he's been tried at the Auckland Supreme Court. Now that's something we could pick up from the newspapers. He was tried on the 2nd September 1844. In his case, and in fact the case with the men on the vessel with him, the column for height has been left blank. We can though, however, glean that from a different record set. We find out that this was a 26 year old man. He had been sentenced to 10 years transportation. He's a Roman Catholic. He could apparently read and write and he was a single man. So that gives us a little bit of a personal profile about him, but it's not all we're going to learn. So on the second page, you can see up the top there again, showing us the source of this vessel. And I find out from this, you know, this is one of those exciting times of going through all the pages where I find another vessel from New Zealand. So one of the things I found particularly interesting about these convicts from New Zealand, they're asked to state their offence. So essentially they've arrived in Hobart, They've either been interviewed on the vessel or taken off to what was called the government paddock and interviewed there. And they're interviewed at some length. Now, because this is the 1840s, particularly for uh, anyone who's not Māori, because there were some Māori transportees, anyone who's not Māori, they are quizzed at some length because the authorities here want to know, how did you come to be in New Zealand at this quite early stage of the colony? And sure enough, some of these men were found to be convicts who had escaped. They had absconded from the system and they had taken off either from Van Diemen's Land or New South Wales, and they were found in New Zealand. And some of them had taken on you know, false names and all the rest of it, but they got rounded up and sent back here. So people had to give very full accounts for, of themselves. And I think that's something that gives us really interesting insights into how you know, some of these people came to be in the colony at this early time. Now, this fellow, Emmanuel Lewis, talks about, he has to explain why he's been transported. And he says that he was transported for stealing one sheep from Mr. Sampson Kempthorne. 
And then he gives an explanation of himself. He says, I arrived here in the American whaler Montezuma with Captain Barker about two years ago. So we learn how he came to be in Auckland at the time. He gives his trade as cook. So clearly he was a cook on this whaling vessel. And his native place is given as Carthagena, but he was brought up in North America. In the remarks section, that usually but not always details any living relatives that the person may have. And he talks about having a brother called Antoine, sisters, Henrietta and Eleanor, and they're in America. So that's given us some insights into why he's sent here and what, uh, how he came to be in New Zealand. So while somebody was within the convict system, a conduct record was kept and it contains a lot of information about a person. It notes everything from obviously their name, the police number they allocated. In this case too, and there's a quite a lot of information in the second, like a, a line going right across the page there. And it gives a very rich physical description of the person. Now this is in the days before photography. So these words provide something of what might be a visual picture people could create in their heads. And the purpose of this was to be able to re-identify someone who had absconded, and there were many. In fact, many women, female convicts absconded um, at high rates as well as male convicts doing so. I was really interested to read the physical description of Emmanuel Lewis, because it describes him in a way that shows that he was in fact a non-white person, if you like. So from the perspective of the, of the convict scribe who had to describe him, he talked about his complexion being copper coloured. He was described as having a large head with black woolly hair and black woolly whiskers, a broad visage, medium height forehead, dark hazel eyes, a medium chin and large thick lips. His native place of Carthagena is further explained here and, and was in Spain. So this is a, a man who has gone from Spain to live in America and then taken up work on a whaling vessel. And this is how he's ended up in New Zealand and then ultimately in Van Diemen's land. Below the physical description is a small horizontal area where remarks are written and these are really identifying marks of a person so these conduct records are a wonderful source of people interested in tattoos for example there's very rich descriptions of amazing you know mermaids and crosses and stars and all sorts of tattoos in the case of Emmanuel Lewis our cook from a whaling vessel it's not altogether surprising to find the poor fellow had mark of burn on left wrist, scar on breast. So, you know, potentially these would have been workplace accidents. It's also described as being stout made. So that gives us some insights into how he was perceived by the person describing him at the time. Well, I, can also, I won't um, go through the whole record for you or we'll take up the remainder of our time just on this man alone, but we can learn from the record he was sent off to do 15 months probation at Jerusalem, a place that was inland from Hobart and has since been renamed. There's a long list of offences um, down. So when someone was already under sentence, if they behaved in ways that weren't approved of, they could be charged with further offences and then they could, you know, they might end up 
on a road gang, they could end up in solitary confinement, they could end up having a diet of uh, bread and water, you know, there were all sorts of punishments, the tread wheel, uh, anything could happen to you depending on the severity of your offence. And it might be something like ironing your shirt on a Sunday or not attending church or talking when you weren't supposed to. We can follow his life through to the end of his period as a convict. And down near the bottom of that section, we learn about his indulgences. Now, provided a convict lives long enough to complete their sentence, there's a series of what are called indulgences. The first is a ticket of leave. That's a little bit like a forerunner to being on probation today for prisoners. So somebody with a ticket of leave could live more or less as a free person, but they couldn't leave the geographical area that they had to remain within. Now, some did. Some shot across to New Zealand when they shouldn't have. And they could work, but... If they committed another infraction, which in fact Emmanuel Lewis did, the ticket of leave could be revoked and they would be called back into the system to serve further time for a period. He was fortunate. In his case, at the bottom of the record, it shows that he received a certificate of freedom on 15 September 1854. That meant he was free to travel wherever he would. Uh, in some instances, people just got a conditional pardon and they could not leave the colonies. They could never return if they had come from Ireland or England or whatever. So he could. So we can actually gain quite a lot of information about the life of this man who, had he not had an encounter with the law, we would otherwise perhaps know very little about. While I won't go into it here because I am focusing more on what the Australian records can show, uh, I've been doing some work looking at his trial in Auckland and what's really fascinated me about the trial of Emmanuel Lewis and William Stewart, his co-offender, was because of the nature of the witnesses called and the testimony given, it actually gives you quite a lot of insight into life in a small pocket of colonial Auckland. You can see who their neighbours were, what the social relationships were between them, who owned the sheep that was stolen, uh, who bought pieces of the stolen sheep. It's, it's really quite an interesting social history. I think for me, one of the things that stood out about Emmanuel Lewis is I was really interested uh, that he had come from Spain. It had gone to America before ending up in New Zealand and then Van Diemen's Land. And the part of the records that told us that is what's referred to as native place. So I guess we could think of it like place of birth. And this particular uh, pie chart that I've created shows you the types of the breakdown of the places where the 110 convicts originated from who were sent to Van Diemen's Land from New Zealand. So as you can see, that big red segment, unsurprisingly, is indeed England. And then the next biggest segment's Ireland. But you've also got Scotland, Wales, America, Canada, Hawaii, Australia itself, different parts of Australia, New Zealand, Spain, Emmanuel Lewis, of course, being from there originally, Italy and Portugal. So that gives us a glimpse of the sorts of locations that people had come from who ended up uh, in New Zealand before being transported to Van Diemen's land. Italy also stood out to me as a place that intrigued me. And so the second 
person I want to look at briefly with you, a little more briefly than Emmanuel Lewis, because I was using his record really to introduce you to more of the fine-grained detail that's available, uh, is a man called Richard Conway. Now, he seemed to be the only person conveyed on the water lily, and he was transported to Van Diemen's Land on 20 February 1846. He's also interesting because rather than being tried at Auckland or Wellington like so many of the others, he was in fact tried at the Nelson Supreme Court. So there, there were a handful of people that were in fact tried at Nelson before being sent here. So there he is being tried in Nelson Supreme Court on 1 October 1845. And his case is heights five foot five and a half. And he was sentenced to 15 years transportation. He also, like Emmanuel Lewis, happened to be Catholic. He could read and write and was also single. So with his second page of his indent, the facing page, we start to learn more about his life in New Zealand. Just a couple of little glimpses about what he was doing. So when he had to state his offence to the authorities, and I should add, People have to state their own offence because the authorities actually have an indent from New Zealand showing what the offence was. And it's kind of that first test of whether the person's a truth teller or not, that it can be matched up to see, well, you know, <laughs> they're a bit dishonest about why they're here. Most of them, though, do actually seem to, you know, cough up and confess what they've done. So he says that his offence was assaulting Constable William Harding at a Nelson public house with a firebrand. Then he explains how he came to New Zealand by the Mary Ann from Deal with Captain Green. And then he makes a statement that he was with Captain Wakefield and the survey party. So that's quite an interesting uh, little tidbit, I think, for us. He also claims never in prison before so that would be to escape any suspicion that he has in fact absconded from New South Wales or Van Diemen's land. So I guess this fellow Richard Conway really grabbed my attention for, the, for all these reasons that we've just looked at about how he came to be in New Zealand and what he was up to there. But also because he gave his trade as a stonemason and he says that his native place was Rome, but he wasn't brought up there. He was brought up at Greenock and his family members are in fact at that point he says in Dublin. So let's have a short look at some of the information on his conduct record. As you can see it's the same format as Emmanuel Lewis's but there's far fewer uh, things listed under the offences. Like everybody else's including Lewis's, Richard Conway's one repeats information on the indent. It provides a full physical description of him which I won't go into here. The identifying features I thought were quite interesting. Uh, it says ring on ring finger, left hand, anchor between forefinger and thumb. What was quite interesting to me is over in the bottom right corner where the remarks are, they're usually just about where people have been assigned or transferred. But in his case, there's more information. And this is so for a couple of the people that were transported from New Zealand. It actually says that while he was held in Auckland jail, he'd cut through his leg irons and made a daring attempt to escape. And he's also described as having used most threatening language. He went on to become a probation pass holder 
on 20 December 1847. So at that point, he could hire himself out for wages. The last entry we see for him is dated 9 August 1848. At that time, he'd been released from the prisoners' barracks here in Hobart to labour for George Watson at Old Wharf, which was basically at Hobart's waterfront. So that ends uh, what we know of him within the convict system. The third and final person I want to explore the records of with you briefly, and he's a man known only as Hecky. He arrived in Van Diemen's Land on the Antares and he'd been tried at the Auckland Supreme Court. Now he too is described as being five foot five. He's 30 years old and he had been sentenced to life, transportation for life. And he, unlike the other two, uh, was Church of England. He's said to be able to read and write in his native language and he was married but had no children. On the facing page of the indent, we learn that he's been charged with the manslaughter of a native of the Sandwich Islands, in other words, Hawaii. Now, this occurred at the Bay of Islands. He says we were both in a whaler and they were labourers from Honolulu. And he claimed to be married to a Maori woman while he was in New Zealand. Now, there's quite a lot of um, interesting information in his trial records. So, he had appeared before the Supreme Court in Auckland in March 1851, charged with the willful murder of Jackie Matara at the Bay of Islands. And because the men had lived for nearly four years amongst Māori there, he apparently could understand te reo Māori. So he was actually given a Māori-speaking interpreter when he appeared in court. And through this interpreter, he allegedly um, said, well, yes, you know, I, I did strike the blow that, that killed his uh, compatriot. Hecky, unsurprisingly, particularly given he confessed to uh, striking the blow that killed the other man, although he said he didn't intend to kill him, was found guilty of manslaughter and hence transportation for life rather than a shorter sentence. Now, his conduct record is uh, sadly very brief. Uh, he's not described even. Uh, it says here that he was accidentally killed at Cascades. So Cascades is one of the convict stations down Tasman Peninsula, not that far from the more infamous Port Arthur. So to step back now from these three individual lives, I want to finish by looking uh, at several slides where I've created some charts and that to give you an impression of what these 110 lives might tell us overall. So the types of trials, as we've heard, a number of people did appear before the Auckland Supreme Court and also indeed the Wellington Supreme Court. Now, and Nelson, of course, the Nelson Supreme Court, before the founding of the Supreme Court, so we had Auckland Court of Sessions and Wellington County Court were other places at which people were sentenced to transportation. Also the Littleton Supreme Court, and that pertains to the people I would probably best describe as bushrangers I mentioned earlier. You might also see there though, Auckland Court Marshals, Wellington Court Marshals and Porirua Court Marshals. And that pertains to soldiers. So, except for Porirua, the other Māori um, who were captured as a result of the Lower Hutt Wars who were transported here. So, as I'm sure you'll be aware, there were a number of regiments in New Zealand at this time. And you can see from the table there I'm sharing with you that a number of soldiers were in fact 
tried and transported to Van Diemen's Land. Some were court-martialed and others appeared before the um, civil authorities. So I found the soldiers' cases really interesting. Many of them were done for things like larceny, you know, sort of stealing, but that was because they had absconded and had no other way to get by. So, you know, they might have had to steal food or clothing, for example, once they had taken off from the military. Some of them openly say that they deserted because they were scared of fighting against Māori. I think almost all of them had that in common. Some of them claim it and others don't admit to that. Sentence length. As you can see, seven years was a really common sentence. And once you got rid of someone from the colony for seven years, they were pretty much gone for good. Uh, a few people came back to New Zealand, but not that many made the return journey. One of the things that really struck me about this particular group of 110, if you put aside, uh, there were six Māori who were transported, although more were sentenced to transportation, and a couple that I would call white-collar criminals. Almost all of these men were single. Young single men, uh, soldiers who had deserted, or else people that were seen to be somewhat dissolute and often impoverished, but not seen to be the sort of characters that you really might want to incorporate into a relatively new and growing colony. Now, in 1853, we see the end of transportation to Van Diemen's Land. And while the courts in New Zealand had still sentenced further people to transportation, it couldn't be carried out. Potentially, they could have been sent over to Western Australia, but I think the little intercolonial vessels they were using weren't making, you know, weren't up to making that journey. There were a few instances of soldiers being sent back from New Zealand to Mulbank Prison in England and then being sent to Western Australia, which I also thought was pretty interesting. In, in some concluding remarks, I, I hope that my presentation has shown you how these individual records for, for the convicts, particularly the indents with the often rich descriptions about people's roots to New Zealand, their origins, the type of work they're doing, their family members, and then those conduct records with the full physical descriptions and the details about their assignments and so forth. Uh, they provide a much more complete picture, I think, of individuals who would otherwise be almost entirely forgotten. And I think in, in many, but perhaps not all instances, these convict records held here in Hobart give us a more complete picture of these people than their trial records do. But read together, uh, the records do, I think, provide insights into the makeup of a fairly small portion, you know, 110, of the largely working class people represented in the Vandemonian convict system who were sent from New Zealand in the early 1843 to 1853. Stay tuned for more tracks in this Heritage Talk series or visit the Auckland Library's website for other podcast tracks. Kia manawaho.